Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Forestine, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost. It's Thursday, July 26th, and here is what's on the docket this week. Some highly anticipated clinical trial results for an experimental Alzheimer's drug were just unveiled. We'll break down the promising data, the caveats, and what to expect next. There's lots of money flowing into digital health companies. Healthcare venture capitalist Lisa Sunin joins us to talk about where all that funding is going, and which bets look smart and which look dumb. Gilead's golden era is over. The company announced that two of its chief architects, affectionately known as the Johns, that's CEO John Milligan and Chairman John Martin, are stepping down. We'll discuss their legacy and what's next for Gilead. So let's start by talking about the biggest news in biotech right now, which also has potential to be the biggest news in biotech in quite some time. We're talking about the clinical trial results for an experimental Alzheimer's drug that just might, emphasis on might, actually have a hope of working. The drug's developers, Biogen and Isai, earlier this month reported positive results for the treatment, which is called BAN-2401. That's in a large mid-stage study after 18 months. But it was at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference in Chicago on Wednesday that they broke down the data. So Damien was there in Chicago to cover it all. So Damien, what was the atmosphere like at the conference? There was definitely an energy during the day on Wednesday before the data were unveiled to the general public. And there was actually a sort of behind closed doors and managed like it was a state secret pre-briefing for journalists a few hours before. And every neuroscientist I ran into after that seemed to be regarding everyone who was in the briefing as though they had some kind of state secret. So there was very much a buzz going into this presentation. So Damien, break down the results for us. Okay, so this is a sort of comically complicated trial, and it's important to remember that to the extent the drug seemed to work, it was only one dose, the highest of five tested doses. But let's get into it. So after 18 months, the highest tested dose had a 30% benefit compared with placebo. And what that means is at the end of 18 months, patients took a cognitive test, whether they were on drug or on placebo, And the patients who got the drug performed 30% better on that cognitive test. And what scientists deduced from that is basically that the drug slowed the rate of cognitive decline compared with placebo. And that's, you know, basically the hallmark of Alzheimer's is that you lose your memory and you lose the ability to do basic functions. So there are also some really big caveats with the data that were presented uh, on Wednesday night. Right, Damien? I mean, yes, so it's difficult to even know where to start. But I think an important thing, just as I mentioned that only one dose worked, it's important to remember that this trial technically failed. The primary goal was, and we don't have to get into this, but using a fairly newfangled statistical measure to predict whether it would succeed. The trial failed on that goal, which was at 12 months. To the extent that there was success, it was at this 18-month period on a secondary metric. And there's another big caveat, right, in the realm of human genetics. Exactly. So there's a certain genetic mutation that predisposes people to Alzheimer's. And it turns out in that high dose group that we're talking about, there were much fewer patients with that genetic mutation than there were in the placebo group against which it compared favorably and against all the other groups. Now, we don't have detailed data yet on basically how people with the genetic mutation perform versus those without. But that is a really, really important factor that we're going to learn eventually, because if you wanted to take a really negative look at this study, you could argue that that disparity of genetic mutation accounted for the entire benefit we saw and that this drug in reality is no better than placebo and no better than the failed Alzheimer's drugs we've seen from the past. 
So, Damien, going into the presentation, there was a lot of op- obviously there was a lot of optimism and hope about these data, uh, including there was some speculation that Biogen and Esai might actually be able to seek regulatory approval for this drug based on this trial. That seems to have kind of deflated a little bit now that we've seen the data. Would, would is that is that a correct characterization? Yeah, I think so, and I think it's important to differentiate you know, where certain opinions come from. The neuroscientists I spoke to, even before we saw the data, were very skeptical that a phase two trial where only one population saw a benefit would ever pass muster to win approval. Where I think the bullishness came from was Wall Street, but also um, from ASI itself. When I spoke with the, uh, the head doctor of the company's neurology unit earlier this month, he was a little bit slippery on on that issue of whether they would file based on these data, but he clearly, he stated very clearly that they would be talking to regulators about that potential. And I think interestingly, um, just kind of reading the vibes and the word choice between ASI and Biogen, ASI has been a little bit more bullish on that. Last night, Biogen, uh, their head scientist, Al Sandrock, I would say he didn't disagree with ASI on that, but he was a lot more measured. And he said at one point that his assumption is that they will need to do further trials of this drug. So Damien, what exactly is next for this drug? So in the immediate future, two things have to happen. One, Biogen and ASI need to figure out exactly what they're dealing with here. And what that means is doing all the gritty, dirty work of subpopulation analyses of these data to figure out answers to some of those caveat questions we mentioned before. And then they got to figure out what the FDA thinks of all this. So the companies have requested meetings with regulators around the world, and that's where they'll kind of present the data, present what they think ought to happen, and hear from the people who whose opinions really matter um, about whether they need more trials, how many more trials, what types of trials, etc. So we're not really going to learn what's in store for this drug for at least a few months. <music> One of the hottest fields in healthcare investing right now is digital health. Venture capital firms in particular are pouring money into the sector. In the first half of the year, digital health companies collectively raised $3.4 billion in venture funding. That's spread across 193 deals. And that's according to a count by the firm Rock Health. So if that pace continues for the rest of the year, 2018 will mark the most deals and the most VC money ever invested in the sector. And we're talking about big fundraises here, over $200 million from companies like HeartFlow, working in cardiovascular diagnostics, and Helix, the app store for consumer genetic tests. Joining us today to talk about this is Lisa Sunan, a veteran healthcare VC. She works in the Bay Area as the lead healthcare investor for General Electric's corporate venture arm. And she's one of the smartest thinkers out there about which digital health ideas and business models work and which don't. You can follow Lisa on Twitter at at VentureValkyrie. And yes, that's Valkyrie, a reference to the fierce women in Norse mythology who have the power to decide whether a slain warrior may pass through the gates of Valhalla into heaven. You can also learn more about Lisa by reading a profile that Rebecca wrote about her on Stats' website. We should also note that Lisa co-hosts her own podcast with Decada Ventures VC, David Shaywitz. Their show is called Tectonics, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. So, Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So, Lisa, let's talk about all this money that's flowing into the digital health sector. Let's start on a positive note. What do you see as the smartest bets in the digital health field? 
the best kinds of ideas that have been getting funded lately? Well, I think there's a three areas that are of particular interest right now to me. Um, one is the digital therapeutic side of things. They've got to be evidence-based. I mean, they've got to be treated like real clinical discovery products. But the interesting companies like Paratherapeutics and Akili working on this, particularly around behavioral health. I think another area that's of great interest on the data side, and you know, granted the data side is very early for AI and the like, but companies like Health Reveal that are doing prescriptive analytics, which, by which I mean not just forecasting what might happen, but providing insights to do to recommend what you should do about it on the clinical decision support side. And then lastly, uh, there's a lot of interest around operational and administrative effectiveness and efficiency. Companies like Nuvolo that do uh, mobile asset management for health systems, for instance, that just make organizations run better in healthcare. So on the flip side, Lisa, uh, what types of kind of dumb ideas are getting funded or ideas that maybe don't deserve the funding that they're getting today? One of the problems we still see is a lot of money going into healthcare that people expect consumers to pay for. And while consumers are forced to pay for some healthcare things out of pocket, and while they will certainly pay for things that are in the fitness realm out of pocket, I think startup after startup has learned the hard way that getting consumers to pay for things that they expect or want insurance to pay for does not work out very well. Let's talk about some of the clinical categories that are getting funded. There's lots of money going into oncology, for instance. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, it certainly makes sense um, for there to be interest in that area. It's an area that is really changing and growing, particularly with the advent of more thoughtful genomics understanding. I'm kind of surprised in a way, though, because I see a lot of Me Too stuff, uh, you know, sort of the same kind of AI models over and over again. And If you look at what kills Americans, cardiovascular disease kills twice as many every year. And I'm struck by how little money is going into that side of things by comparison. Lisa, you got your start in the business working for a startup that was an early pioneer in managed care for behavioral health. There's been a lot of investment going into behavioral health companies in in the digital health space. Are these companies going about tackling behavioral health challenges the right way? Well, there seems to be three different flavors of this stuff. There's the telemedicine, you know, see a counselor over the phone or over the video kind of thing, which is great because it improves access um, as long as people know that it's there to be used. There's the digital therapeutic stuff I mentioned earlier, like Akili or Pear that are trying to address digital health conditions with actual digital types of treatment. And then there's the combination self-diagnostic, assisted diagnostic therapy models um, that look and feel more like the digitization of traditional therapeutic engagement. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm a little concerned that there's a lot of over-focus on the mild to moderate depression, anxiety, you know, categories where They kind of look all the same, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy plus some telemedicine plus some something. And while there's some, there are some interesting activities going on on around the digital therapeutic side for more severe mental health conditions, I wish there was more attention to that. Um, Because I do think that that is a giant contributor to medical costs. And there's not enough people working on things like panic disorder and PTSD and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder where the real need for innovation is. One of the factors that for a long time seems to have quelled investor interest in digital health was that there just wasn't much evidence supporting these mm-hmm. products and programs. Do you see that changing? Well, I see certainly the recognition it has to change. 
coming to fruition. And you see companies like Evidation, for instance, helping companies like the pharma industry, you know, companies in the pharma industry demonstrate and prove digital health, you know, products validity or not. Certainly it's going to be true that if, if anybody expects significant revenue from anybody legitimate, they're going to have to prove it works. And I think that is a growing recognition. And the FDA, I think, has been very helpful here in, in designing a program to make their piece of it very possible. And what do you think about digital health startups going after the employer market? Is, is that a successful strategy? It can be. I mean, certainly it's been successful for companies like Accolade and uh, and others. I mean, the employers are paying for, you know, about two-fifths or, or so of, of all the insured populations out there. They have a lot of power. They work in cooperatives together and collaborate through National Business Group on Health and others. The biggest challenge, though, for them is that they don't really want to buy from 72 vendors. I mean, they don't want to have a vendor that buys, that they buy something to treat, you know, your nasal condition and a different one for your big toe. They'd like somebody to consolidate this stuff. And so they struggle with the number of vendors that come after them and are really looking to invest in platforms. So you're a VC, so let's talk about exit strategies. We're seeing very few IPOs in digital health, right. but increasingly lots of M&A. How do you think about exits when you're considering a digital health investment? <laughs> How I think about exits is they're a long way off when I make these investments. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that's really driven the tech investors who crossed over crazy is it takes a good solid, you know, eight to 10 years to mature a lot of these companies. Um, there hasn't been a digital health IPO since, since I think 2016. I think iRhythm was probably the last one. There has been some M&A, although frankly, it's not that wild and crazy. It's been pretty consistently 60, 70 deals a year, which is not a lot considering how many companies are getting funded. So while we have seen some mega deals this year, like PillPack, for instance, it's a, it's a long road to the end of the investment here. Exit strategy is um, something that takes a great deal of patience. So, Lisa, recently you posed a provocative question on, on Twitter, uh, and, and your question was this. Would AI improve the woodchuck's ability to know how much wood they could chuck and or whether they would or should chuck wood at all, given the current state of the data? Do you have an answer to that question? Oh. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that was my finest hour of deep thinking, but, but honestly, I was amused by how many responses I got to it, because I think there's a general... Um, on the one hand, excitement about AI and machine learning, and on the other hand, a deep cynicism about how fast it can really make a difference. And I think for me, as I sat, I wrote that while I was at a conference where that was the topic du jour, I think that, that ambivalence is profoundly real. And it needs to be really understood because I think, you know, every startup seems to, you know, want to say it's an AI company right now, even if it's, you know, selling grapefruit juice. And, um, most of these companies really aren't AI or machine learning companies technologically. And even if they were, the state of the data is so poor in most of these cases and so limited that they really can't make excellent predictions. So um, a tongue-in-cheek way of, uh, of capturing that thought. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to chat with you guys. drug makers have ever had a golden era like that of Gilead Sciences. For years, investors were spoiled with super high revenue and earnings growth from the company's HIV and hepatitis C franchises. But this week, Gilead's golden era came to an unmistakable end. CEO John Milligan announced on the company's second quarter earnings call that he will be stepping down at the end of the year. Executive Chairman John Martin will retire as well when a new CEO comes on board. 
And these guys have been running Gilead for kind of an absurdly long time. Yeah, that's true, Damien. Uh, both of these guys joined the company in 1990. That's just three years after it was founded. Uh, and uh, I'm the resident old here, so I remember in 1990, Gilead was a private startup. Uh, Mariah Carey's Vision of Love was the biggest song in America. And Rebecca hadn't even been born yet. So John Martin was appointed CEO in 1996 before he transitioned to executive chairman in 2016. And then Milligan held various roles, including chief operating officer and president, before becoming CEO in 2016. So Martin leaving makes sense. But Milligan leaving, I think, raises some questions here because he was only CEO for two plus years. What went wrong? Well, you know, Rebecca, I, you know, I affectionately call them the Johns because then that's kind of how they're known. And, you know, the, the the relationship between Milligan and Martin was always very close. And for even for years before Milligan became the CEO of Gilead, he was really running the company. I mean, those two guys kind of ran it together um, when Martin sort of became a chairman and executive chairman. He gave up the CEO role. You know, he had really not been running day-to-day operations at Gilead for, for several years. So Milligan, even though he was kind of official CEO for two years, he was actually kind of running the company for a lot longer. It's still curious, though, because, you know, for years he was, as you mentioned, the, you know, sitting at the the right hand of the father or whatever, but was also clearly being groomed to take over one day. And when that changing of the guard happened in 2016, I, I don't know, I don't think anybody foresaw that it would be such a short tenure as CEO. Is there something, Adam, do you think, you know, the way the company has evolved over the past two years that made Milligan think it might be better served in someone else's hands? Or is it possible that there's something we'll learn days or months from now that that might provide an explanation for this? Those are all good questions. I mean, I think Milligan's departure is definitely unexpected. I don't think anyone really saw this coming. But at the same time, just kind of based on some calls and reporting I've done last night, is that it sounded like this was kind of one of those mutual recognitions between him and the board that, you know, it was a good time to kind of get new blood into the company. Those guys have been there for for almost three decades. And this wasn't a case where I think the board, like, fired him or, you know, there was any acrimony. It was really kind of just this mutual decision that it was time for change. So let's talk about their legacy here. What do you guys see as the biggest triumph of the Johns? You know, I really would say HIV is kind of the biggest triumph and and kind of the most important legacy of Gilead Sciences. If you think back to the mid-1990s, you know, HIV was a universally fatal disease. Um, then you saw the development of, you know, antiretroviral drugs that sort of helped staunch the disease. But even then, patients had to take, literally had to take like a bowl of pills every day. And what Gilead did was, you know, not only develop new and more effective HIV ther- therapies, but then combine them together into like single pills that, that a patient would take once a day. So Today, if you think about HIV, it is it has become a manageable chronic disease. People who get HIV today, you know, they take a single pill every day that basically keeps the virus at bay. And those patients, those patients will never develop symptoms. They don't die of HIV. So it's pretty remarkable if you think about it from a patient benefit. And Gilead played a huge role in that effort. The the Johns, the tenure of the Johns has been marked by sort of furtive and sometimes problematic embraces of oncology. Um, you know, the company started focused on oncology. Things 
move toward uh, antiretroviral. They made a few acquisitions trying to break into the market for cancer, but those drugs, even the ones that um, that want approval, never really gained ground. And then, of course, the most recent sort of upheavalish news uh, from Gilead is they paid $12 billion for Kite Pharma to get in on the CAR-T wave in oncology. And so far, that seems to be going well. But I, I did find it kind of curious that Milligan's leaving now because that $12 billion figure and the whole commercial prospects of CAR-T, I think it's fair to say, remains something of an open question despite early successes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and you know, and Gilead's kind of foray now, more aggressive foray now into oncology is a big question mark. You know, those those efforts have not sort of paid off in substantial revenue. Um, and so that's kind of one of the things that is an open question that has to be addressed by whoever becomes the new CEO. I mean, I think with Gilead, too, you can't you can't just you can't talk about Gilead without talking about hepatitis C because you know after HIV Hep C was there was their sort of next act of the Johns of Milligan and Martin and you know there they were uh, you know again hugely successful right they developed these rapid highly effective cures for the liver disease um, you know billions of dollars in revenue were delivered almost overnight although you know they also got a lot of criticism for the pricing of those Hep C drugs. That's an interesting one, because I think it's kind of both one of their biggest triumphs and in the sort of court of, of public opinion, uh, one of their biggest failures. Yeah, right. I mean, everyone probably remembers the whole like $1,000 a day pill kind of thing that happened when Gilead launched their first uh, hepatitis C therapy. You know, they got a lot of criticism for that price. Another facet of the John's legacy might lie in the sort of diverging fates of the hep C programs versus the HIV programs. Because Adam, as you mentioned, their HIV drugs have turned that virus into a chronic therapy. Their hep C drugs cure more than 90% of patients with that virus. And so as a business case, and this is sort of, you know, getting into kind of the grimy details of pharma, HIV is a better business than hep C is. And we've talked about this on this podcast before. It underlines a sort of uncomfortable and maybe debatable truth about the drug industry, which is that curing things is not always the most lucrative thing to do. So let's talk about the new CEO who's going to have to fill the shoes of the Johns. What kind of CEO do we think Gilead's going to pick? There's sort of two options here, right? There's someone in the mold of the Johns. And then there's the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what we transition to now is kind of who who will run the company now and who will sort of take it into this next era. Uh, you know, there was a suggestion on Twitter last night that, you know, Jackie Faust, who is a sort of highly regarded former Celgene executive who left that company, um, then she went to go work for uh, Roy Vance. Uh, maybe she could be a candidate. I mean, there are some other names that are being thrown around there. You know, again, whoever takes that job is going to have to, it's, it's a, it's a, they have big shoes to fill. Um, you know, they're going to have to, clearly, they're going to have to sort of move more aggressively and expand that oncology business. I mean, Gilead has made this gigantic commitment to oncology. So whoever takes over is going to have to have some experience, I think, in oncology. And then after that, I mean, one of the big criticisms that, criticisms that Gilead always gets is, you know, are you going to do more M&A? Is there other companies that you might acquire in order to grow? And so, you know, I think whoever takes this role as new CEO will have to sort of have that kind of experience. And this is based on no reporting whatsoever, but I wouldn't be surprised if Robin Washington, who has been Gilead's chief financial officer for some time, ends up being, if it goes, if they end up choosing an internal pick, I wouldn't be surprised to see her um, take the top job. 
Or conversely, uh, something I learned just the other night is that Donald Rumsfeld was once chairman of the board at Gilead. So if they wanted to reach out to him, I'm pretty sure he's free. Unknown. Unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. We want to thank Alex Hogan and Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Del Vicio and Matthew Orr are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. Uh, a sad note here today. Uh, this is Jeff Del Vicio's last Read Out Loud podcast. Jeff is leaving Stat for the safe embrace of academia. We will miss him, but we thank him for helping get this podcast off the ground. Jeff, any parting words? Long live the lightning round. <laughs> And a reminder that we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you don't like, ask us questions, or just rant about how wrong we are about everything. And you can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.